What's going on, everybody? Welcome to another Whiskey Web and Whatnot with myself, Robert William Wagner, and my co-host, as always, Charles William Carpenter III. Nobody calls me that. Yes, they do. I do. (laughs) (laughs) Boop. Anyway. I just wanted to do that first. Boop. Oh, stealing thunder there. (laughs) Mm. Yes, our guest today is Jason Langsdorf from Learn With Jason. What's going on, Jason? It's great. I'm doing great. I'm very happy to be here. I'm excited for this uh, for this format. It's a little different. Yeah. It's what we shoot for, basically. Different. <laughs> different is good. Different is bad. We don't know, but we definitely cover different. Yeah. It's like Apple said, think different, right? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Jason, if you want to give a brief intro into who you are and what you do for the folks at home. Sure. I am Jason Langsdorf. I host a show called Learn With Jason, which is a weekly pair programming show. I bring somebody from the community on who's an expert and they teach me a thing that they are an expert in. Uh, It's about 90 minutes live pair programming, super fun. And then I also live stream on my own on Tuesdays for a few hours. And then on top of that, I help companies with making better media. So I'm I'm kind of a consultant for going out and, and creating better video and other types of outreach to reach developer audiences more effectively. Nice. Do you do consulting on backgrounds? Can we get some help with our lighting and <laughs> the things behind <laughs> us? <laughs> I can, but I'll, I'll be honest. It's just going to be a list of YouTube videos that I watched. Oh, that's perfect. Nice. Fair. I'll pay 50 <laughs> bucks for that. Yeah. <laughs> I'll send you another bottle of whiskey for that. How about that? <laughs> perfect. No, we'll barter. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, uh, kudos to you for especially like the Tuesday live coding thing. I feel like I am garbage anytime someone is watching me type and I couldn't imagine for hours having to like delete, retype, delete and retype like half of what I do. I've definitely watched some of your videos and I'm impressed how you just like keep rolling through it. And even if you need to do a little of that, you're really like talking through the steps you're taking, the choices you're making, looking and responding to feedback and the chat stream and stuff. And I was like, good for you. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot, but I, I have a, a really good time with it. A lot of it comes from just repetition though, right? So I early on in my career was a, a musician and I was the the front man of a band. So I spent a lot of time like being up in front of people. I was in an emo band. So I was wearing, you know, tight pants and a white <laughs> belt and I had my eyeliner on and I was trying to dance. And I'm used to looking foolish in front of people is I guess what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so now when I'm doing it with code until recently, because I just got a new keyboard and it's one of those non-standard keyboard layouts. I got an Ergodox EZ mm. and it moved my space bar and my delete key and stuff. So now I'm really struggling on the live coding because my typing speed is like half of what it used to be. And I keep mistyping things. That's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but for sure. I can't really imagine any other way that I'd, that I'd want to do this job because whenever I've tried to do stuff pre-prepped, I'll spend so much time practicing and you get everything like, oh yeah, it's going exactly right. And then as soon as you get in front of a crowd, one small thing goes wrong and then you're completely off the rails. So treating it more like improv and and knowing that everything's going to go wrong and just being ready to, to laugh about it and roll into your fix as opposed to getting flustered because it didn't work is it's a survival tactic. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Okay. You know, wave of the hand over here, but I think that's an excellent correlation. I hadn't really considered that if you mentally prepare yourself in more of an improv kind of thing and Mm. off the script is totally fine. Then you don't get flustered really in that same way. 
Yeah, it's like as opposed to trying to go verbatim, you're trying to go with bullet points. You have like three things you're trying to get done. And if you run out of time, it's okay if you only get the first two. But otherwise, you're kind of making it up as you go along. And that that tends to take a lot of the stress off. Yeah, because you've got natural stopping points and and you don't have things you exactly have to say. You just want to get in that vicinity. I'm trying to show this concept, not say exactly these words. And it makes it a little less high stress to go on because you're no longer you're not performing anymore. You're just hanging out with people trying to show them something. It's like if you're at a meetup and people crowded around your computer while you showed off something you were working on, it feels more like that and less like, uh, you know, a stage performance. Yeah. And more fun, I would imagine. I have a whole lot more fun because you, you know, you're just joking around with a bunch of devs in a chat window, which is, I feel like that's the most fun part of any day job anyways, is screwing around in the chat. So <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody can see my Slack chats. Yeah. That would be interesting. But before we get uh, continue to go down that path, we'll definitely circle back to it, I'm sure, in a couple of uh, different points. But let's get to the whiskey, the actual fun part of being here. Let's do it. Today, we are having a Heaven Hill bottled in bond seven-year straight bourbon. So it is, oh, where is that? 100 proof, that's what bottled in bond always means. It is, as I mentioned, aged seven years. It has a mash bill of 78% corn, which is pretty significant for a bourbon. 12% malted barley and 10% rye. So it should be interesting. So this is like bourbon from the OG Bardstown main area. It's not in Bourbon County, actually, but it's where a lot of like the original distilleries are. Mmm. Smells like bourbon. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, I got to do it right on the mic, right? Sure, why not? Mm -hmm. There it is. <laughs> yeah, we don't add sound effects. That actually is just getting as close as possible, I guess. So this place is a pretty cool story. They kicked off right after Prohibition. Some like retail guy brothers bought into the distillery and just started trying to make better stuff. And uh, they've been doing pretty well since, I guess. Yeah, I did a bourbon tour a while back with a friend of mine where we, we went to several distilleries, including we went through Heaven Hill in Bardstown. And it was super cool to see. Also super weird to find out that just about every whiskey label now is under Buffalo Trace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really, we went to the Buffalo Trace distillery thinking we were going to see like Buffalo Trace. And I was like, oh my God, there are like 40 labels here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like all the stuff that's really hard to get, like all the Weller things and the Obviously, Pappy's another distillate of theirs and mm -hmm. Sazerac Rye. And yeah, like so many things. Actually, Heaven Hill has a decent number of labels under their stuff, too. Yeah. They have Rick Houses all over the place. And they're doing like the Ezra Brooks and the Evan Williams stuff. This. Um, yeah, just a ton of things. It's cool you got to go there. The thing that that really confused me was when I realized that different whiskey labels were the same whiskey at different ages. Mm, yeah. Like I didn't know, like Pappy Van Winkle is, if you pull it out of the barrel earlier, it becomes, which one is it? Weller. Yeah. Right. So it's the same whiskey. It's just like, it, you know, been in the barrel a little bit less time, which is fascinating. Just 20 times more expensive. <laughs> 20 times more expensive. And the other thing that was fun is when I was in Kentucky, this was right around this time. Did y'all hear about the Pappy Van Winkle heist? Yep. Like a legit, like old timey heist busted into a warehouse, like, you know, just like roll into the warehouse and like stole half the remaining inventory of Pappy Van Winkle, which is one of the reasons why if you go try to buy a bottle now, it's like $3,000 on the aftermarket or something. Yeah, if you're lucky. But this was before or right during 
the time when Pappy was becoming like very, very high demand. So we found uh, Pappy Van Winkle 12 year, which I think was the most expensive one that we had found. It was one of one of the like the really high dollar ones. And it was only $40 a pour. Nice. In Kentucky. So we were like, oh, yeah, we're having that. Please. <laughs> I think it's $130 a pour now when I find it. Yeah, well, you're, I was going to say you're in Portland, so you suffer. Anyone west in the Mississippi is going to have just a, a harder time finding a lot of stuff. Just the distributors mm-hmm. out here aren't as much. I'm actually from Kentucky, mm. so I got some connections there. I, uh, yeah, back in like 2007 was, I think, the first time I tried Pappy, and I got to try like the 15 and the 20 for like $25 a pour. It was crazy. It's a different world. Maybe the most upsetting story I have is that a friend of mine got a bottle of Pappy Van Winkle 20-year just off the shelf in a local liquor store in Whitefish, Montana for like $120 or something because nobody in Montana knew about it and they didn't care. Right. So it was just like the price was so much lower, which because it was a lower price, he got it and we drank it fast and then realized what it was actually worth. (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) Oh, man. That's funny. But, you know, I don't know. That's a two-edged sword. Because to one degree, like the secondary market has turned these things into trophies. Mm-hmm. And like, isn't the fun of whiskey drinking it? Like, I don't know. So, yeah, you know, you got a shot at it at a normal price rather than like paying that much for one dram. Yeah. Yeah. What about this whiskey? I was starting to sm- I smelled it first a little bit. I got a lot of caramel, actually, on the initial smells. And then a slight like floral after. Yeah, it's a little floral and fresh. It's like a. Febreze air mist or something. (laughs) (laughs) Less like, less chemically though, possibly like maybe like an actual spring. Yeah, something you would put in your body. Yeah. (laughs) What I'm finding pretty remarkable about this one is that for something bottled in bond, it doesn't have that like sinus clearing heat that you get Mm -hmm. off a lot of the high proof stuff. Yeah, no, it definitely has a a low hug rate, but enough to let you know it's there. Mm -hmm. So it's not bad, but um, I thought, with the high corn, it was going to be too sweet, and it definitely isn't. And I think, like, the the rye has rounded it out a little, or the high proof has taken some of that down. Or, mm-hmm. Well, I think this is one of the things that's been really interesting to me is I remember when I was younger, I thought about the proof as being, like, the most important part where, you you know, you're like, oh, well, we're going to a party. We need the Bacardi 151, right? The, yeah. the highest proof thing we could get. Yeah. And then as I started buying whiskey, I kind of thought the same thing. I was like, oh, well, the overproof whiskey is the better whiskey. And I've started to realize it's more of like, if you're making a sweet drink, you want an overproof whiskey to cut the sweetness of the drink. If you have a a drink that's not very sweet and you put an overproof whiskey in it, it's just going to taste like booze. So you want the more calmed down whiskey. So it's been really interesting to... uh, to learn, I don't know, the thing that everybody learns, I imagine, which is moderation. <laughs> and yeah. like, everything's got a purpose. There's no like right or wrong way to do this thing. But but there's certainly like, what I like about this is that a lot of times overproof bourbons feel very much like they are intended to be mixed. Mm. Like it's there with the extra boost to stand up to the sugar in an old fashioned or to stand up to the vermouth when you put it in a, a boulevardier. But this one, because I think of the high corn, is actually really drinkable on its own. 
Yeah, I think those are excellent points and some things around cocktail mixing, because I don't do a ton of cocktails, but I do love some of the ones you mentioned, like Boulevardier. Like I love Negronis in the summer and Boulevardier in the winter. And like Mm -hmm. I can see this making a lot of sense there in that. And yeah, I guess that does make a lot of sense in terms of putting the right proof in your cocktail based on some of the other complementary ingredients and times where you might scale up and down. Mm -hmm. So. That's good. I think that's good advice and feedback around this one. But yeah, I, I do think it's very sippable on its own. It's decent. It does, it's not stand out to me, but it's good. I kind of feel like that. So, Jason, I know you've probably listened to every single episode of the show, so you're very familiar. But for those who aren't, we do this semi-formal rating system. It's one to eight tentacles, one being the worst stuff you've ever had, eight being the best stuff you've ever had. And obviously four is just like in the middle, not a big deal, not necessarily bad or good. Robbie and I, because we've been doing this for a few episodes, we tend to categorize them together. So we'll say based on other bourbons we've tried, but Mm. we don't care how you, you know, you can do that however you'd like. Why tentacles? Because our consultancy's logo is a uh, mythical octopus-like character. Ah. Almost Cthulhu-like, you could say. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. So whenever somebody hires you, they're summoning the Cthulhu? Yes, exactly. (laughs) I mean, in some ways, they pay money for that. I'm not sure why, but still keeps happening. (laughs) I think I would probably rate this, it's on a a one to eight, you said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I would put this at a solid six. Like, this is something that I would happily grab off of my bar and sip. It's something that I would not feel terrible mixing like i think if it was an eight like i would never mix it with anything you just want to drink it on its own yeah but this one i think would be a good mixer it's a good sipper it's one that i would bring out for friends it's not like a special occasion whiskey i would say this is a good every day yeah and some of my consideration around that too is this like how good what is the quality how good is it how much would i come back to it also like value for money in a way Mm. i think this one maybe was 60 or 65 i don't know in that range and at that price point like i pick it up again i feel free to like have it on a weeknight and not feel bad, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. And if I had to mix it with something, I wouldn't feel bad too. Cause $80 bottle, hundred dollar bottle, you start to feel like, Ooh, I don't want to put this in with other things. Cause you know, it's just a little pricier. I don't want to use it so fast. So I, I was actually feeling a six two as well. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. I'll say a six as well, <laughs> just for consistency. I was maybe thinking more like five ish, but I'd say six, six is good. Why can't you be a rebel? Just have your own thoughts. I just can't do it. I let other people think for me. Fair enough. We'll go with that. So yeah, anyway. It does round out the uh, the Cthulhu with a triple six. Like we're staying on brand here. Yeah, that's true. We took you somewhere with that one. Are we helping or hurting your business right now? <laughs> I think it depends on some people's personal beliefs and their association yeah. with demonic beasts, possibly. <laughs> Post-COVID, I don't know. Could it get any worse? I'm just kidding. Uh, So a few more professional hot takes that we are going to talk about, especially in association while having whiskey. Hopefully it'll get funnier. So, you know, you're an avid participant in the thing that is Twitter, tech Twitter. And I'm sure you've seen a number of these discussions. I've seen some feedback even from yourself. So here's the thing. How do you feel about Tailwind? Is it is Tailwind okay, or do you have to use vanilla CSS? You should use whatever you can convince your whole team to use. A lot of the discussion about like which tool is right or wrong is sort of missing the forest for the trees. I think that if you are arguing for a tool for the sake of the tool, 
you've been misled. Mm. Like, I think it's much more about you're arguing for a tool for the situation that the tool will enhance. And if I'm working on a project by myself, I'm not going to reach for Tailwind. It feels like a lot of ceremony. It feels like a lot of setting things up that I can code myself. And, you know, for maintainability, I know my style of CSS. If I am working with a small team and all of those people are CSS experts, I'm probably not reaching for Tailwind. If I'm working with a small team and none of them are CSS experts, I'm probably reaching for Tailwind. Like it depends on how much flexibility do people want. It's this, I would say it's sort of the same as like, would you reach for a visual site builder or a, you know, a bespoke JavaScript framework? depends on how well everybody knows JavaScript, right? Mm. Like if you've got a team full of marketers who have never written code in their lives, handing them a React site is a terrible idea. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that the same kind of follows with any tool. If you've got a group of people who have an expertise or a lack of expertise, then the tools you choose should be polyfilling for where they're at and allowing them to use their strengths. But Tailwind or BEM or any CSS organizational tool is exactly that. It's an organizational tool. And if you're using it because you think it makes you better at CSS, and maybe it makes you better at CSS, but it doesn't make everybody better at CSS. Like your skill is your skill. If you become a Tailwind expert, you're a Tailwind expert. If you're a CSS expert, you're a CSS expert. Both of us can build a website. We can probably both build an identical website. And if I've practiced CSS my whole life, I'll be faster with CSS than Tailwind and vice versa. And so I think, you know, the argument that like, any tool is right or wrong is sort of missing the the broader point of like why do tools exist in the first place? I think that's spoken very well said. Yes, your experience in developer relations is bleeding through <laughs> in that response. In my view, <laughs> I'm like, this is yeah. I remember I used to get emails from this guy when he was at Netlify. Yeah, this is the voice I'm hearing now. <laughs> and I think that's diplomatic and correct. I think that we've always said it as a community to a degree, unless you're like didactic about a particular framework or something because maybe you're a contributor to it outside of that it's always like the best tool for the job right and there's so many right. inputs into that decision and even if it is the best tool for the job but like half your team is adamantly against it like is that the fight you want to have i mean is for this for like the same visual output for your users right let's decide what hill you're going to die on and there's a point where it's a good idea to make what is perhaps an objectively terrible decision because it's the right decision for the team. Like I'll give you an example. When I was at IBM, we worked on the IBM cloud dashboard, which was a few dozen teams working on all this together. And when IBM first started moving more toward front end, they sort of said, use whatever tool you want to for the job. So parts of IBM Cloud were built in Angular, parts in Vue, parts in React, parts in Backbone, parts in jQuery. And that wasn't necessarily a bad thing. Like they were a microservices architecture. Everybody was sort of building things the way that they built them. As they started to scale, they started to see the, the seams and where that was an issue. So they wanted to, to normalize. They wanted a design system and they wanted to start enforcing some uniformity across the, the site. And so the first instinct was we're going to standardize on, I think React was the prevailing, like whoever the architect was at the time was like, we're going to do React. So they were trying to push everybody to React. And what they were finding is everybody was doing it wrong. 
And a lot of it was because if you take a Vue developer who's never written React and you say, go, you're switching to React today. First of all, they don't want to. You've now forced them to leave the tool they like to use a tool they don't. So they have no incentive to learn. They're not here by choice. They're here by force. So they're, you know, they're adversarial with the tools you're giving them. They don't want to use them. They want to misuse them. They want to make your life hard because they're mad that you made them use the tool they didn't want. Mm -hmm. And we saw that start to happen across the company. And so then they switched and they they made a choice, which I think every design system person I've talked to would say, this is the worst choice you can make. But they started building the design system in all languages. There was a vanilla version, a Vue version, an Angular version, and a React version of the design system. And it was a huge amount of work. It was an absolutely brutal maintenance workload. But it got the whole company to adopt the design system. And in a way that they were willing to do. So the objectively bad choice for a design system was the objectively correct choice for the company and for the team that like the team structure that we were in. And I don't know how it's evolved over time, but I imagine what happened is they sort of brought everybody together on a design system and started to abstract away some of the things that didn't need to matter at all so that people didn't even realize they were moving toward Angular or React or Vue. They were just using the design system. So all that being said, like, the only way that you can really use a tool wrong is if you're basically dragging people kicking and screaming against their will into using a tool because you're just setting yourself up for failure. Like if you slap everybody in the face with a tool and say, you must use this or else, they're going to find ways to break it out of spite. You got to bring people with you. And, and a lot of times, you know, finding the tools that people are willing to use, even if those tools aren't as objectively awesome as whatever tool you're excited about, you're going to get better results in the long run. And you're going to get people who actually adopt and choose the tool instead of you fighting this constant battle of like having to be in every PR review to remind people, oh, you can't do it like that. That's not the React way or whatever it is that you're trying to do. Mm. Or just use Astro and everyone can use every framework. Done. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there is that. <laughs> That's the the micro front. End. Yeah, it might be another one of those like, yeah, the micro front ends. <laughs> That's it. That's the micro front ends. That's the key. That's where you can unify on Astro. We call them islands now, I think. You can call them whatever you want. I'm actually really interested because I, I'm waiting for somebody to do that, where they, they actually ship an Astro site at a massive scale that's got all of the frameworks in it. And then we're going to see the, the inevitable retraction. It's like, ooh, not like that. <laughs> 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 One of the things that I think is really powerful about Astro is that it, it gives you the ability to like get everybody on one platform to start. Because I think the hardest part in large team anything is the incremental migration story. How do you get people to start to move together? Because you you never get permission to just grind the company to a halt for three months while you rebuild everything. Right. You're never going to get that permission. And even if you did, you're not going to get it done in three months. So how do you incrementally move people to a better system? How do you slowly nudge people toward where you want them to be? And I think that a lot of that comes down to finding a tool that lets everybody work together, but in ways that fit their current style. And, and that's something that I find really interesting about Astro that hasn't really been addressed in other platforms. So, yeah, I, I think if anybody's got a shot at like making a big play on the like the enterprise web building space, Astro's actually got a really interesting incremental adoption story that's not there for other tools. Which is highly ironic for me because when I was introduced to Astro just in passing initially before even like trying it myself, I thought like, okay, I mean, this speaks to the static site generator 
story plenty to me and you can sprinkle in some interactivity as needed you know brochureware will run away with this and it's way less complex than like gatsby or whatever else and lets you kind of bring your own framework for the most part mm. so those are all good compelling stories but the fact that it's like evolved to a more complex tool set has been sort of like really surprising and they're kind of the trojan horse around that because i definitely thought even like a year ago that next was gonna like take that mantle up with them snapping up a bunch of talent and it was like when are we gonna get spelt as a view layer and, you know things like that and hasn't come to fruition and obviously remix is very married to the react story so excellent point around like astro really could make a play in this space and do some things and i think there's something interesting to be said about you build a tool like for the needs of the time and react was built in the mid 2010s for a very different set of needs. Like the platform was in a different place. The browser was not what it is today. You were just missing a bunch of APIs that are, are way more commonplace today. And I think the other thing was we, we hadn't built so much of the infrastructure that makes things like Astro possible. So part of the major challenge is that like a framework like Next is built entirely on the back of React. And to move to a multi-framework thing, you're effectively rebuilding it from scratch. I'm probably glossing over some major technical details and, and caveats here. So, you know, take all this with a grain of salt, but like Next is a React framework. They've never not said that. Mm -hmm. So for them to become multi-framework is effectively reinventing the whole thing. It's gonna be the framework of Theseus by the time it's done because they'll have to replace every piece to get to a point where it can do something else. Remix, I think a little less so. Remix is built largely on the web standards. They're using React as a view layer, but I already know they've got a path toward like Preact support. Now that they're over at Shopify with Jason Miller, who's the, the Preact maintainer, like they're sitting pretty close together. It wouldn't surprise me at all if we see Remix on Preact soon. And if that happens, it's a pretty short leap to seeing React on Solid or Solid Remix on Svelte. So who knows? We'll see. I am very cautiously optimistic to see a sort of renaissance of like, maybe we don't need JavaScript frameworks so much as we need web building frameworks. Mm. And I think that's why we've seen more of a put, like even the React team is like, well, you shouldn't use React. You should use a framework for React, mm -hmm. right? Like they're even like Andrew Clark is out in Twitter saying like, use next, don't use React, yeah. which is interesting to me because to me, that sort of signals we've lost the need for React. React is now an enablement layer. It's a component layer that lets you use something like Next. And instead, we need web builder frameworks. And so the interesting thing about something like Astro, something like Solid, something like Quick, they're built on today's requirements because they were built today. Yep. They were built in the last couple of years. Yep. They're not dealing with, you know, the backward compatibility challenges that you get when you have a project like React that has been around for 10 years and needs to be you can't go break tens or hundreds of thousands of backward compatible sites by saying, oh, yeah, we've decided that we're not going to do all these polyfill things. I know that your internal intranet still uses an Explorer 6, but we don't care. Whereas Astro can say, hey, you wouldn't build with Astro if you're going to be using Internet Explorer 6 on your internet because that's not what it's for. Yeah. <laughs> right. So they sort of get a start with this clean slate and say, we're making decisions for today. We don't have to worry about 10 years ago. And you can give it another 10 years and Astro will be in the same place React is where a bunch of people have built on it and now it's got backward compatibility challenges and somebody will invent the next next thing. Right. <laughs> and that'll be great. Like, I think that's the wheel of, of innovation. And, you know, I just, I hope that we embrace that and don't dig our heels in and say like, oh no, we got to find a way to make, you know, the thing that I like work. 
because it's always worked. <laughs> right. Exactly. That sounds like a real boomer statement or something, except for no boomers are building in React at this point, but maybe they will eventually. <laughs> it's funny because I'm thinking about like positioning between all of these different libraries and frameworks that we're talking about. Right. So, I mean, React is developed for Facebook's purposes and has evolved through just and has to constantly still meet. Facebook's purposes, like they contribute to mm. open source, but they're not incentivized by that necessarily, right? Next.js, it has a company where, you know, great, you know, I loved Next.js. I think it was a really great tool for a lot of things. It put guardrails around like crazy React application stacks because React's not an application framework. You have to fill in all the rest. And so you can choose your own adventure. Mm. And that was not so for a while. I mean, sagas, I don't know. But next, put a, some great guardrails around that, let you build apps fast. You have some rules. Great. And this just works. But it's also like designed like for its best experience to be deployed in Vercel and some of its underpinnings get utilized through that process and their deployment. And they're incentivized by that. They're monetarily incentivized by that at this point. Mm -hmm. So you make a great point around like if they have to like completely rewrite parts to allow folks to bring their own view layer. Why, though? Right. And then what's that cost for their, you know, hosting platform? Right. And then conversely, Astro, right, they aren't incentivized by that at this point. They have the corporate entity, but they're still focused on the tool, the best tool for the best purpose along that. And there's right. I would argue that even though Remix is in the Shopify house, they're still in a very advantageous early days position where now they've just been supercharged with money to do a great thing for a little while that will just make Shopify better. But Shopify isn't pushing it at this point. Yeah, I think the thing that's really interesting to me is the idea of open source being a direct funnel contributor. I think there's, when you look at, for example, like Netlify employs Zach Leatherman from Eleventy and Ryan Carniato from SolidJS and... Now with the acquisition, they employ Kyle Matthews from Gatsby and a lot of open source creators are employed at Netlify and Netlify has no, they don't monetize based on frameworks. They monetize based on hosting. They want you to host websites on Netlify. They don't need you to use specific features of specific frameworks to get that value. Astro, I don't know. I saw Fred talking about publishing his his vision for like how they're going to monetize, but they've stated pretty publicly multiple times they're not building a platform because I think the the incentives are bad. Yeah, <laughs> like we saw what it did to Gatsby, where Gatsby went really adversarial against anybody who wasn't hosting on Gatsby. We're seeing the you know right from the get go as soon as Vercel branded as Vercel, the next JS docs became a walking billboard for Vercel. And if another company does try to make Next better for their platform, Vercel has every incentive to discourage making that visible. Mm -hmm. And they're not super incentivized to like accept pull requests that would make Next more compatible with other other platforms. And, you know, they do things like they they always do a little bit to help. Like they they launch Docker containers so that you can self-host Next.js wherever you want with all the features of Vercel. Fine, but like if they open an adapter API, then Cloudflare and Netlify and Render and Fly and all these other hosting platforms could build optimized adapters for their platforms. And as a result, Vercel is pretty 
incentivized to drop the Docker containers and not the adapter API because they want their not on Vercel experience to suck a little bit. Yeah. Like that's where their money comes from. Right. And so I'm very curious to see with something like Remix, where the monetary incentive for Shopify is for people to get Shopify. You have a store, you're hosting products, you're selling things through Shopify. That's how they make their money. If you use Remix to publicly host your your Shopify front end, that's good for them. They can, you know, that's why they were building Hydrogen, I think. And I suspect that mm-hmm. Hydrogen and Remix are going to sort of merge into, into one kind of super Shopify project. That's good for them, but it doesn't matter if you don't, because you can go build the next site that pulls Shopify data and host it on Vercel and Shopify still makes money. Yeah. Right. So to me, that incentive is more clean. Like they're trying to make it easier to build with Shopify, but it doesn't matter to their bottom line if you don't, as long as you're using Shopify in some way, shape or form. So I wonder if when the VC money really dries up or if Shopify has a downturn, if they'll cut their open source. And, you know, we we'll see if if the same happens at Netlify, if the same happens at Cloudflare at these companies, you know, a lot of companies have an open source division and I don't know how well funded any of them are. I mean, I know how well funded Netlify is because I was there, but otherwise, you know, it, it seems like everybody's got a lot of money going into open source right now. And I really, truly hope that that continues because I don't know that we function with like a sponsor based OSS style anymore. And I don't think we function with like OSS projects as businesses Yeah, because we've seen that go pretty poorly. Yeah. It's a difficult model to challenge, you know, the uh, doing it because you're interested, you want to learn things and you're just a techie person. Like now we're all getting older and our wives like nice things. And like, it's just not tenable to do an extra 10 hours a week contributing back to open source projects, you know, and yeah, sometimes not all companies give you time for that. And not all like we have some small open source projects that we contribute to. We've done a little bit with Astro too and all of that. But at the end of the day, that doesn't keep it functioning. Right. Like the main contributors, the main, the core teams around these projects, like can't function forever without some, model that keeps it going. So yeah, it's a pretty tough challenge. And like, this really is the major challenge because I remember I I was trying to sponsor projects when I was at Netlify because I had found a way to get some budget allocated. And so we were the first major sponsor of Astro, for example, and uh, the first sponsor of Solid that was corporate, I think. Like we, you know, we were trying to get out there and trying to help people build the web. And I went to Svelte and I went to Rich Harris and I said, hey, can we be a sponsor? He told me, he's like, "I'll, I'll be honest with you. Money isn't actually the problem. It's finding people that can do work. So like Svelte being a relatively visible project and Rich being pretty visible in the community, there's a lot of sponsorship for Svelte and and not like, I mean, it's not enough that they could sustain themselves full time on the project, which is why Rich ended up joining Vercel to be able to focus full time. Yeah. But there's enough money that they could hire or pay volunteers like they could pay people to be maintainers of the project. And the challenge is that there aren't enough people who have enough time to actually make significant contributions because the level of complexity to get onboarded into the core of a framework like Svelte or Next or Gatsby or whatever, it's big and it's messy and there are a million edge cases and there's so much context that you just have to have. So it's you're looking at like a really non-trivial onboarding phase. And if somebody doesn't stick around past their first pull request, 
like as a maintainer, why would you bother onboarding somebody for one PR? Yeah, it's just it's so much of your time that ultimately results in very little. So how do we get the hands? How do we get people who have the time and the incentives to continue working on the thing? And I don't have an answer, but, you know, the the solution that we went after at Netlify before I left was to just hire open source maintainers and give them zero product deliverables. Yeah. So like when we hired Zach Leatherman, well, at first he was on the the design marketing team, but we moved him to an OSS only role where like his job is to work on 11D. He's like, do whatever you need to do for the open source community. Like that's why you're here. And he doesn't have product deliverables. He's not on the hook to like market Netlify. There's no real strings attached. Just go make 11D great because that's what's important. And we did the same for Ryan. We did the same for, I think I assume that's what they're doing for Kyle with Gatsby. But it's like, Try to give people an actual full-time job working on open source so that these tools continue to stay strong and, and well-maintained without having to go out and build a damn platform. Right. But I mean, that's a unicorn position too, mm-hmm. right? So that solves the problem for people that broke through on big projects that they put a lot of time into before mm-hmm. and they got to cash a lottery ticket basically because mm-hmm. that's not a position you apply for. You get asked to do. Right. And that's a real special position in these companies. And bear in mind that these are only happening in companies that are also providing developer centric tools. You know, Netlify isn't out asking Lululemon to like participate, like maybe secondhand, they might become a customer, but they're not marketed as a direct customer there. And that kind of company, e-commerce based retail things, Mm -hmm. they're never going to hire that kind of position. They don't care about the frameworks. They need the output. And then so it's very specific. This like nuanced. I think this is one of the hardest problems that we've got to figure out how to solve. And I feel like we've been trying to solve this forever. Open source is one of those things where at first we couldn't get people to trust it. And now there's been a shift where people trust open source. And and now we've got to overcome the problem where a lot of enterprises see open source as, as quote unquote free labor. They see that as externalized maintenance, as reduced headcount, right? Instead of them mm-hmm. having to build it in-house, they can use some open source tool and they don't factor in any budget whatsoever for keeping that open source tool healthy. So- the next major thing that we've got to figure out is short of making every open source project into a commercial tool, which of all of them, the only one that I think is actually profitable is Red Hat. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I'm racking my brain to try to, I don't think any other open source tool is profitable. The other open source tools manage to build other businesses on top. Like, you know, Tailwind has Tailwind UI, but that's not, you're not paying for Tailwind. You're paying for like prepackaged Tailwind layouts Yeah. or like, you know, they'll have pro serve, they'll have consulting, they'll have whatever it is, but it's usually not the open source itself. You're not paying for like a commercial license of Svelte, right? Yeah. So I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how we get there, but it does feel like this is something that we're going to have to I mean, maybe we don't, maybe we don't deal with it and we just see open source sort of dwindles down to like, there's a hobbyist market and there's a couple big ones that get funded by big players and Mm. we'll wait for the next revolution. (laughs) I think these things ebb and flow. So first of all, I would, Mm -hmm. I would regress a little bit onto your comment around like we're seeing a, a rise in enterprise organizations taking advantage of open source. And I would suggest that that's been happening for as long as possible. That has absolutely been happening for a pretty long time. And then like you can cite someone like the Faker JS guy who just lost his shit 
when he couldn't afford his rent and mm. screwed up that library that tons of packages were using. And there's even like more simplified nefarious ones that were like really root level, simple NPM packages that screwed up a bunch of things for these very reasons, mm. realizing that they're getting like millions of downloads and some of those customers in that download, it's Microsoft, it's Google, it's whatever other corporate entity, it's right. Oracle, and they aren't paying a dime back. You know, they're not sponsoring like, oh, yeah, they sponsor a conference does shit for that person contributing for a decade plus. Right. So I would say that that kind of taking advantage of the open source community has existed for a pretty long time. And there's a, a lot of challenges in trying to say, like, how do we support that? You could easily say, like, Actually, where I'm going to go with that is, so we talked to Max, who created Brew, and he has this new thing now mm. called T. I don't know if you've heard of it. I haven't, no. T.xyz or whatever. Yep. And it is about trying to, like, basically using, like, microfinancing to do some payment system around open source. The thing is, it's a blockchain thing. And obviously, right mm. now, a lot of people are kind of poo-poo on that ideology. But if you thought about, like, every download had a microfinance payment back, and, you know, if you're getting a million downloads through Microsoft, and maybe they're paying five grand a month or something, or much less, 50 bucks a month, whatever it was, it's all, like, a big part of this. So it's an interesting way yeah. to sort of say we're trying to indirectly monetize that and whether it's tea or something else who knows but i i do think like a micro payment strategy to like get it like if you were just like yeah. oh i throw 10 bucks a month into the pool and i get to use 100 tools maybe that works i don't know i think that's the uh the right format i think it's just like the problem with T is you need to use a different package manager so like yeah i'm gonna t install all my stuff right so unless everyone jumps from npm to t or whatever yeah, that's not going to work. So, you know, you need a thing that just bolts on to where everyone is already installing stuff that you can say like, okay, Microsoft, we realize you just made $50 million off of using this tool. You should probably give back like 200000 or something like, you know, a reasonable <laughs> kickback comparatively to the amount. But what we're slowly walking toward, and I think this is going to be, this might be my nuclear take for the episode, but what we're walking toward <laughs> is taxes. Mm. For real. Like it's the same idea as like being in the public sector and being funded by grants. Like I think we're moving toward a little bit of like if you use open source, you need to pay X amount of your profits and it can be a small amount. It can be, you know, one one percent, point five percent, whatever. And that goes into like a pool that's used to write grants that allow people to work on open source full time and it lets us keep these things healthy in a way that's sustainable for people. And that's going to create a weird little cottage industry of grant writing for OSS folks and what, you know, whatever format this takes. But I don't think there's any way outside of making it like a legal obligation to fund the things that you use the same way that we're legally obligated to fund firefighters and we're legally obligated to fund public libraries. Like nobody would do that by choice. <laughs> like there's this tiny little group <laughs> that would happily go and donate 25, 30 bucks a month. And, and we do like, you know, I have my list of charitable donations I make every month, right. but I'm not doing enough to keep somebody employed full time. No. Right. And so it, I think it needs to be like 
something that is legally required because otherwise, why would companies do it? They'll never opt into expenses. They have to be required to have expenses. Yeah. Right. That's not capitalism, right? They're not doing what's best <laughs> for their community and no. humans as a whole. I mean, that's proven itself over and over. Unless it's for a tax write-off. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Do they get <laughs> a further tax reduction? No. Yeah. But they could. Like, if you made this, you have to pay for open source and it's a tax write-off, that's somewhat of a benefit for them if it can be qualified as a charitable donation. Whereas like now, if you contribute to Open Collective, 90% of that is not a charitable donation, which is some bullshit in my opinion. Right, because each project has to register as a 501c3. Mm. Yeah. Right? And most of them don't. Right. It's a pain. Like the paperwork involved in registering as a charity and like making sure that you're above board with your your finances and stuff, it's not an insignificant amount of work. Mm. Mm-hmm. I do think there are ways that you could do it, but I don't think anybody wants to do it because it's not going to be like this is not going to be a huge profit center. This isn't the sort of thing that you get VC funded and get a 10x return on. This is going to be this is going to be like opening up a Planned Parenthood. It's a slog that helps so many people and is very like rewarding emotionally and not rewarding financially. Mm. (laughs) And I just don't know how we get somebody to take up that mantle. I think the Planned Parenthood take could be your nuclear statement for this episode. And I'm liking it. I'm like trying to think of how I can one up (laughs) it a little bit. There's so many nuggets of wisdom there. I'm going to take it back actually a little bit. Noodle on that one for a moment. And we were talking about various frameworks and incentives and all that kind of things a bit, like at least early on in our show, we talked to Tom Preston Warner and I saw you had uh, actually Robbie noticed it, a Redwood JS hat in your background. At least it looked like it. The acorn thing. (laughs) Yeah, there's one back there. So in the scale of like a web making framework and one that actually could also like have an interchangeable view layer, like what thoughts, feelings, feedback, anything about Redwood JS? Because I mean, it's a full stack web framework. Yeah. Redwood feels the way that Rails feels in that it's giving you like a very opinionated, very kind of done for you style of building where you say, I need a new page and you just tell the CLI, give me a new page. And it kind of spits out everything that you need. And I think that is such a powerful way to approach building at scale. Because again, earlier we were talking about the challenge of adoption when you've got a big team where you need people to do things a certain way and it has to be done in a way that like if I get transferred between teams, I don't have to do a month of onboarding to figure out how the other team writes code. It's I should be able to be productive on day one. And you do that through standardization. And I think that's one of the things that makes Angular so popular is at the enterprise level is that Angular is Angular. You don't find like a bespoke Angular app. They all look the same. They all feel the same. They're all generated with the CLI. And that's very much by design. And that's a huge strength. And people will say that Angular is too heavy on boilerplate. But I'll tell you what. Angular boilerplate is what makes it so portable in terms of skill sets. When you move between Angular projects, there's not a lot of variance in what you're seeing in there. Like an Angular project is an Angular project. The same cannot be said for React. Like each React project I've been in is completely Wild West. So when you get into Redwood, Redwood has that predictability of Rails and of Angular where you you know you're going to see the same code in every Redwood project. And I think that's great. It's also the reason why I don't use it. And that's because I'm not a big team. I'm an individual. So like for me, I like to write code, like it's fun. And most of the projects that I work on are my personal projects. So for a smaller thing, like a blog or a a personal project, 
it feels like if I didn't want to deal with the code, Redwood would be great. But because I like dealing with the code, I don't really want Redwood to do most of my job for me. I want to fiddle with it and get it wrong and mess with the folder structures. And, you know, so I, I think uh, it's it's one of those things that it. I'm curious to see how Redwood solves that gap of like, how do you get developers to adopt it individually to sell it up the chain? Or is it just something that's not going to happen that way where you need you instead need to go in at the middle and get like engineering managers and, and tech leads to adopt it on behalf of their teams? Yeah, I think they're attacking it from the standpoint of founders because they're saying we are the framework for startups because of this. Mm. You're going to ship fast. Mm -hmm. We've made all the beginning architectural decisions for you. So come choose this ship fast. And, you know, your MVP is way more full featured because you didn't spend time over here. Yeah. And that's interesting. I think that's a compelling story. I really didn't get to spend much time with it in the way that I kind of. It came into my purview around the same remix Astro Time. And then I felt mm-hmm. a little like, I'm overwhelmed. What do I want to do? <laughs> then I would ask you then, do you use TypeScript in your personal projects? I do, but not for the reasons that I think a lot of people use TypeScript. I use TypeScript because I want autocomplete. And if using TypeScript gave me strict type safety and all of the benefits of TypeScript and nothing autocompleted, I wouldn't use it. Right. Because it's a lot of overhead, right? It's one of those things to me that feels like a fun puzzle, right? Like writing TypeScript types when you get beyond a certain level is like doing Sudoku. You're trying to untangle this logic and you're trying to figure out a way to get your types to work and to cooperate and, you know, merge these two complicated arguments into one cohesive type that doesn't like lie to you about if it's this one or this one, you're not getting, you know, crossed properties. That stuff is so fun. (laughs) There's so much fun logical puzzle in there. And I don't care. Like I don't care at all. Hmm. When I am writing TypeScript, I'm doing it because I'm exporting a function. And when I import that function, I want to get into the parameters, hit command space and see what I'm supposed to put in there. Hmm. Right. That's it. That's all I want. And so I will do the bare minimum TypeScript required to get that outcome. So like internally, I don't type internal objects if they're all in the same file. I'll get to it if I'm exporting something. That's about the time I start to care. Hmm. But I do really like the power of TypeScript. I love that if you hover over something, it'll show you what's inside of it. I love that you can do the dot to autocomplete. And that stuff is really, really powerful. So I like it for personal projects. And I've started just defaulting to TypeScript because everybody pushes that way. And because all of the frameworks now are doing a really good job of building that autocomplete into their APIs. So if you start a new project with Solid or Astro or Svelte or Next or Vue or Nuxt, like they all have autocomplete for all of their APIs. And especially with some of this really cool stuff coming out, like uh, Tanner Lindsley it did a, a router recently as part of the, the TAN stack. And that thing is like type safe in a way that I haven't seen. Just it infers everything. It knows, you know, you feed it in a route and it knows stuff about your route. So it's somehow managing to like get your data to then infer in a way that you can use it with autocomplete elsewhere. And I'm like, oh, it's amazing, right? So <laughs> that, I'll use TypeScript for that. That stuff is incredible. If I had to build the TanStack router, that thing would be written in JavaScript. You would have no autocomplete. I am very sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> sorry only to yourself. It's totally fine, right? Yeah, so we should probably move a little bit into some not tech here with some really important hard-hitting questions like, what are your favorite pajama pants? Because I saw on your website that you love pajama pants. I do love pajama pants. Mm. So 
somehow, not somehow, very much by design, <laughs> I have maneuvered myself in every company that I've been a part of into being like the swag lord. <laughs> <laughs> on purpose. Is very much on purpose. Like I always want good swag. And I feel like a lot of companies, not through like intention, but just because it's not something anybody's actively focused on, they end up with a t-shirt and maybe some socks and like a mug. Yep. And that's what their swag is. And that's fine. That's fine. But I want cool swag. I want custom pajama pants. So at Netlify, I actually worked with one of our designers, Rafa, and we came up with like, we designed our own plaid pattern mm, wow. and made pajama pants that are like the all over plaid print with the logos in them and, you know, all that. It's just, it's super fun. And, you know, it's like a cool thing that is, it's not that hard to do, right? If you can get a repeating pattern, you can call one of these companies and they'll manufacture a custom pair of pajama pants for like, you know, $14 a pair mm. or something with a 30 pair minimum order. So like any company that has any level of income can probably manage to do a limited drop of custom pajama pants. But yeah, so the, my favorite pajama pants are the ones that I have designed myself because it just makes me smile when I get to pull out a goofy piece of my art and wear it all day around the house. Yeah, that's pretty cool. The custom Netlify tartan, like you're prepared yeah. to <laughs> go to war with Vercel now wearing your own tartan. They got shit. <laughs> the gauntlet's been dropped on Guillermo. Make your own pajama pants, bro. Uh, he doesn't listen to this. No. So another interest that you have, and this one speaks to me a little bit because I am obsessed with burgers. I mm. watch the burger show on YouTube. It's probably like one of the few other shows on YouTube I watch aside from like Hot Ones. Hot Ones is like, mm. uh, but I love the burger show. Love smash burgers in particular. They're my go-to as well. And I know that you and Sarah had a little like burger off, at least planned. I don't know if it ever came to fruition, but I saw both. Only planned. We haven't been able to make it happen. Yeah. And so I know you both like had your versions. I'm still very skeptical of her sous vide version as well. Like it just seems bougie as shit. <laughs> sous vide smash burgers? I want to try it, but. So the funniest part about those burgers is that. I was talking about how I was making my smash burgers and she was talking about how she was making her sous vide burgers and both of us were giving each other shit for being overcomplicated, right? Like, you know, that episode of Parks and Rec where Chris Traeger challenges Nick Offerman's character to like a burger off and he's going to make this really like very cool turkey burger with like a special glaze and all these different things. And then Nick Offerman's like, this is a burger on a bun. You can add ketchup or not. I don't care. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so both of us were accusing the other of being Chris Traeger in this circumstance, which I understand. Cause like my, my smash burgers have a lot of rules, if not a lot of ingredients and the sous vide just feels like, like a lab kit, right? Like you're going to kind of make your burgers in a lab. I have not had the sous vide burgers, but I have no doubt in my mind that it is delicious because sous vide is an incredible way to cook. And if you get the burger cooked perfectly and then get a sear on it, yeah. it's going to be an incredible, like it will hundred percent be an incredible burger. Now I don't like really thick burgers though. Like right. I don't want a medium rare burger. That's an inch thick. That's like basically raw hamburger meat in the middle. I like a medium rare steak. I don't like a medium rare burger. Yeah. So for me, at least, I very much have the uh, I like a smash burger because what I want in a burger is the crispy sear. I want the cheesiness and I want the bun to soak up that grease. Mm -hmm. That's what I want in a burger. If you put an onion ring and guacamole and like 
I don't know, gold leaf on your burger. I'm just pissed <laughs> off because it, to me, you're masking up your subpar burger with a bunch of toppings. Also, if I have to like smash your burger down to get it into my mouth, I'm like, why? Why are we doing this? Yeah, you've lost the plot a little bit there. Yeah, like I'm intrigued in a way that I've made pub style burgers like that before. And you can reduce some of the toppings. You get nicer grinds or whatever. Maybe I'm not finding the right mix in the grind, but it's kind of the same thing. Like, I don't want that weird, like ground beef, mushy texture in the middle. Mm of my burger in the way that I want like a melty, you know, medium rare steak. Right. So I'm a little like, I don't know, maybe I haven't hit the mix on that, but even if I'm doing like some of those toppings and stuff, I want still a little crust and a little grease and all of that. Like smash burgers to me have been the way forward. I don't know if you've seen uh, this, like the burger show or like I have seen any of this stuff with George. Ma- I did a whole pilgrimage to Amboy in L.A. Oh, because I really wanted to. I was like, I got to try this. I went with um, Chan, Michael Chan and Chance Strickland from the remix team. Mm-hmm. We went and did like I was in San Diego with my partner, Marissa. And- oh, did you know that means whale's vagina, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's such a weird but obscure fact that most people don't know about San Diego. Sorry, I just wanted to slip that in. So we we were down there and we <laughs> Yes, you were. I was talking to talking to Chan about every like all the places we wanted to eat and he's like, "Okay, how absurd would it be to drive up to LA for a meal?" And I was like, how good is the meal? <laughs> yeah. So we rented a car. We drove up to LA and we, uh, we did like a pilgrimage out to Amboy, which like Amboy is a butcher shop and smash burger place. And it is set up in this like strip mall in Chinatown in LA that you feel like you're very much in the wrong place. You're kind of turning mm-hmm. down this alley and it's like dark and half the shops are closed. And you're like, am I, where am I? Am I lost? And then you turn the corner and you're at Amboy and it's like just this cool little shop and they'll make you one of the best smash burgers you've ever had. Yes. Um, but yeah, I love that show. Yes. To answer your question. Do you have George Motz's book? I have read George Motz's book, but I don't have a copy of it. Yeah. Oh, so I've tried to make everything. I've made everything other than the steamed burger that he does. That's out of, I don't remember where it was out of, but that one's a weird one, but like the deep fried burger, very interesting. You get similar crust. You got some greasiness hmm. and some, uh, I forget the one that's like stuffed with cheese, but you got to like put, holes in it specifically the way that it so it's oh, like the juicy lucy style yes yeah. yeah those yeah it's kind of fun so anyway i also geek out on burgers so yeah i feel where you're at for me cooking has always been something that it was not something that i loved when i was a kid my family was not like a big cooking family my my mom doesn't like to cook my dad is very much like a everything's fine if you make it a stew kind of thing. Like we don't waste food. We just throw the iceberg lettuce into a pot and boil it. And I was like, I don't know if I like food. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just trying to stay alive here. (laughs) My first job was at a a restaurant and I, you know, I was in the dish pit and it was a, a wood fired pizza place. And they also had a full kitchen in the back that was, you know, kind of Italian style cooking. And I would every shift meal order a pepperoni pizza. And the chef one day was like, do you eat anything else? And I was like, 
I was like, I like pepperoni pizza. And he's like, yeah, but we got a lot of good food here. Have you tried any? I was like, mm, I don't think I like any of this stuff. And he, he took it upon himself to fix me, which I very much appreciate in retrospect because he introduced me to well-cooked everything. Like mm. I used to think that vegetables only came out of a can and I thought they were all disgusting. And I used to think that chicken was always like dry and sucked all the moisture out of your mouth because my mom was worried about making us sick. So she would err on the side of overcooking the chicken versus giving us something that might have salmonella, right? Mm -hmm. So there was just stuff like that that wasn't really, I never had a juicy piece of chicken. I'd never had like a butter sauteed piece of broccoli or something. Like none of those things were even on my, in my realm of existence. So when I discovered that food could be made well, it became an interest. And then when I got older and I actually had enough money that I could afford to like invest in good cookware and I could buy the nice ingredients and go to the farmer's market and, you know, just I could afford the luxury of that stuff. I got really into cooking and it's just sort of become this like it's the way that I spend time with people. You know, I, I, I'm not good at yeah. I don't drink a ton. I don't do well at just like sitting and talking to somebody, but I love feeding people. So my way of being social and having people around is to feed a big group of people. And mm. my partner's the same way. So we're always like hosting dinner parties or something. And mm. yeah. You're in Portland, right? I am. I'll see you in July. Great. I like to eat. You like to cook. These are great things. Yeah. We'll meet you at the whiskey library. <laughs> oh yeah. That's true too. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. No, that's an awesome thing. And I can definitely sympathize mm. with a lot of that whole like, getting into cooking and understanding. Although I did grow up with grandparents that could make great Southern cooking, but oh. outside of that, yeah. Southern food with my grandparents, everything's homemade and has a ton of lard and it was amazing. And then you had like, you know, grew up on a lot of microwave meals and whatever else, especially as yeah. a teenager <laughs> with like a single mom. Where did you grow up though? It wasn't Portland. I don't. Think. I grew up in Montana. Oh, wow. Nice. Love that. Yeah. My wife has family in uh, Bozeman hmm. and then now they live in Stafford or Stanford, I don't know, around the mountain from there. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. My uh, I have grandparents in, in Bozeman. I grew up in Whitefish, which is up by Glacier National Park. Mm -hmm. And I spent a lot of time in Missoula, Montana when I was still trying to be a rock star. Nice. That was kind of the staging ground for my band. Yeah. Very cool. Do you fly fish? I have attempted to fly fish. I'm actually, I'm not allowed to fish with my family anymore. <laughs> I am not a superstition person, but I am absolutely cursed. Mm. I have been on a commercial fishing vessel with my dad and my uncle. And it's, you know, one of the ones that goes off the coast of Oregon. They use a fish finder. They get a big old group of fish and they just give you a fishing pole where you push a button and the hook drops down. Right. And then you reel it up and you catch a fish. Like it's literally shooting fish in a barrel. Yeah. Everybody on the boat caught their limit except for me and the person directly to my left and directly to my right who got <laughs> no nibbles whatsoever. Like the captain of the boat came and like checked my bait, switched my pole, like made sure I was doing it right. I got nothing. No, like the fish could tell that it was me and they were uninterested in my bullshit. So after that, we got off that boat and we had to do the walk of shame where like everybody on the boat has their bucket of fish and they're waiting to get it because they, uh, those vessels will like yeah. fillet the fish and kind of freezer pack it for you so that you can get it home. And we had to walk up with our empty buckets and everybody else on the boat is looking at us like, what happened to you? <laughs> so my dad, we got to the top of that dock and my dad is like, you're not coming with us again. <laughs> yeah, this is a waste of money for you. Just don't bother. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's funny. Well, you know, yeah, everybody has their has their niche, and sometimes it's not uh, 
What would seem obvious, right? I think what I've learned about myself as an adult is that if the electricity ever goes out, I will be food. That's about the only <laughs> purpose that I'm going to serve. So when chat GPT rises up and takes over the world and the machines all, you know, try and kill us, you're in. I'm toast. I'm done. All right. Get behind you. They'll shoot you. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Good enough. You're the first one we eat. I got it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, on that note, we are over time here. Is there anything we missed talking about or stuff you want to plug before we end here? Maybe. I don't know. Come watch my show. It's fun. I'm on <laughs> mm-hmm. Twitch all the time. Uh, you can find links to me everywhere at jason.af slash links is sort of a list of everywhere that I hang out online. So come hang out. Cool. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you liked it, please subscribe. Leave us some reviews and ratings. We appreciate it. And we will catch you next time. Boop. Thanks for listening to Whiskey Web and Whatnot. This podcast is brought to you by ShipShape and produced by Podcast Royale. If you like this episode, consider sharing it with a friend or two and leave us a rating, maybe a review, as long as it's good. You can subscribe to future episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more info about ShipShape and this show, check out our website at shipshape.io. 